The reading for this morning is from Isaiah chapter 8. We will pick up right where Sean left off at the end of chapter 7 and pick up with chapter 8, verse 1. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I'll read the entirety of the chapter. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin, And the son of Remaliah, now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass through, it will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves and be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness." I suppose if you have stayed completely hidden from the culture around you and social media in front of you, you may not have realized that the holiday season was upon us. Um, The cat is out of the bag, having sung that song. Whether you like Christmas music this early or not, 
there you have it. In the history of the church for a couple of thousand years now, there have, have been not only in the season of the holidays from a secular standpoint when we think of our calendars and Christmas, but even in many church calendars, even healthy Christian church calendars, there's been a season of what's called Advent. And in more recent days, that would be the four Sundays or four weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, over the course of history, it's some, sometimes been three weeks, sometimes as many as six. I suppose that would depend on how much attention and how much emphasis uh, each of the different denominations or churches wanted to give uh, to the concept of Advent. Over the next five weeks, including today, we will do that. We'll give some attention to the coming of the Messiah, to the incarnation of our Lord. Um, it is a season of anticipation. Advent, from the Latin, literally, Adventus, means coming or the arrival. And all through the Old Testament, we see the promise of one who is coming. There is a promised king. There is a promised Messiah. And we, as God's people, are expected to be preparing for that, preparing for the day of the Lord. So that's what we want to do, not for the coming of the Lord this Christmas necessarily or literally, but using the season as a reminder of what is ours in Christ, because God did become a man, and what blessings are ours as God's people because Christ came. So we anticipate and celebrate the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. We prepare our hearts for worship week in and week out with prayer for a half hour on Sunday mornings before the corporate worship begins. In the same way, we are preparing our hearts day after day, week after week, leading up to the celebration of the coming of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. Today, we want to look at backing way up to the promise of that initial coming. There are promises from the prophets. For us specifically, it is a promise from the prophet Isaiah that he will come. There is hope on the horizon, Isaiah says to the people of God. And then in the coming weeks, We'll have the privilege of looking at the fulfillment of this promise from a few different angles in the gospel. He came. This one who was promised actually came. God came, robed in the flesh, and lived and died for our sakes. And now that we live on this side of Christ's coming, and living and dying and being raised again and ascending on high where he rules and reigns, from the throne even now, we have this guarantee that he's not going to sit there ruling and reigning forever, but he's going to come again. So not only do we have a promise from the prophets, we have fulfillment in the gospels, but we also have this guarantee of God that Christ is coming again and he will consummate his kingdom. We have hope promised, hope fulfilled, and hope for us. 
Now, when we do take time to look around and read the news, listen to what's going on in the world out there or the world in here, we are incredibly prone to falling into the wrong thinking that somehow our day and our situation is drastically different than every other day and every other situation. But at the end of the day, our time, the time in which we live, is not unlike any other time in history. Generally speaking, the the only thing that's actually different from every other time in history is that it's not every other time in history. It is our present. It's the day that God has, the days in which God has called us to live and given us the privilege to be salt and light in the midst of a dark world. But I agree, assuming you agree, that when we look around, things look bleak and dark. And we may be prone to fall into the trap of assuming that the bleakness and the grimness means a hopelessness. But as people of the Scriptures, there should be no hopelessness in us because we're people of the King, a King who rules and reigns and who does all things well. We're people who belong to God, a God who promised that He would send a Messiah to save His people and did so. And a God who's promised that that Messiah, that Son of God, is coming again to rule forever and ever. God has always been and will always be an unchanging, constant reality. He is essentially the same forever and ever. But us, mankind, since Adam's awful fall in the garden. We have been sinful, notoriously wicked, heinous. We have not been getting better and better, as some may like to argue. Nor have we been getting worse and worse, as others might be easily convinced. Actually, if with any integrity at all we measure ourselves against the only real constant, which is God Himself, the unchangeable one, we as humans, men and women and boys and girls, have been miserable wretches who love self and hate God since that original attempt of ours to usurp His kingship in the garden. And because that is the case, because God is unchanging, And we are still sinful people. The Scriptures, God's Word, is wonderfully relevant for our lives. The hope that we find in these promises of old should fill us with hope. We ought to glean wonderful hope as we consider the promise that is made, knowing that the promise has been fulfilled, and knowing that we still have hope that Christ will come again. Now, we've read Isaiah 7 this morning, we've read Isaiah 8, we're going to eventually end up in Isaiah 9, but before we get there, I want to back up to a familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet himself meets with God. I should probably get some water if someone will grab some for me.
I can feel it coming. So, the dryness. Isaiah meets with God. That familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord (coughs) seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Sorry, thanks. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, (coughs) Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. God said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Isaiah has this encounter with the living God, recognizing that he falls into this category that I've just described that all of us are in by birth, by nature. We're sinners before God. We are helpless before him. And Isaiah recognizes this and he humbles himself and he is redeemed and reconciled with God through the blood that was there on the altar that had been shed. And when he looks around and realizes that many more are just like him in the same state, that their soul is in danger of being damned forever. When God asks, who will go for us? Isaiah answers, here am I, send me. And right from the outset, as Isaiah accepts this call in his life, he is promised a failing ministry from the beginning, a fledgling ministry at best. Nonetheless, he unflinchingly accepts the Lord's call. Here am I, he says, send me, I will go. How can Isaiah do that? Because the call of Isaiah is based on what he saw in God, who God was. That he's holy, that he deserves to be worshipped. Not what he wants, but what he and the people around him need. They need God. He met God face to face. He experienced the mercy of God. And he willingly and gladly accepts the commission of God. There is... There was no honeymoon period for ministry in Isaiah. It was immediately doom and gloom, we might say. We see that, saw that in the reading of chapter 7. Isaiah has just had this wonderful encounter with God. He's volunteered to go into service, telling other people about the goodness of God and their need to repent. And then there's immediate war against all the people of God. In chapter 7, the enemies of God are closing in. Verse 2 of chapter 7, Isaiah and the people of God, their hearts, David, 
shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They are scared to death, we might say, because the enemies have surrounded them. And Isaiah is sent to encourage them in the midst of their anxious fear. Take care, he says in verse 4. Be calm. Have no fear. Don't be faint-hearted. He goes on to say, even though the enemies make these grand plans and they scheme against you, (coughs) their plans will not stand, verse 7. They will not come to pass. And not only that, Isaiah says, if you fail to believe, you will not last. So Isaiah guarantees that the enemies of God will not prosper, but he also says to the people who ought to be the people of God, who ought to know better, if you do not believe the word of God, you will become like the enemies. You will not last. (coughs) Isaiah continues on, verse 14, this sign or promise that is given. It was a promise here and became a sign later. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, think about the immediate context here in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy. This God is going to be God with you. He's going to draw near you. Or if you think about the the greater picture of Scripture that we've considered this morning, Psalm 139, that God is going to be God with you. He's going to draw near. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, essential oneness, yet distinct persons. When the second person of the Trinity comes, it is God with us. The fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And he drew near to his people. Isaiah continues his promises in verse 16 and following, guaranteeing that there will be ultimate demise of the enemies of God. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. These mighty empires that are threatening you, they will be completely forsaken. They will be flattened because they're not for me. They're against me. He refers to them as flies being called on and bees being summoned to wipe away the present enemies. We can see from here, and if we consider history over time, we see that nations fall and nations rise at the bidding of God who, is, who alone is sovereign. Isaiah points out here that the destruction of Judah's enemies will serve as a warning for themselves. It's a warning for Judah to repent, I mentioned already. He said, if you do not believe, you will not last, just like they will not last. If you do not repent, we can hear him saying, you will suffer at the hands of new enemies. I've raised up these enemies to come against you, and if you do not repent, (coughs) I will continue raising up enemies. The offer of peace is made for God's people But they do not receive it. They reject his offer, and war continues. Moving into chapter 8, God uses the Assyrians. He referred to them earlier as bees. He He uses them to discipline his people. Verse 8, 
Then it will sweep on to Judah, will overflow and pass through, or reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. They refused to find rest in the shadow of the Almighty, so they find themselves beneath the wings of the evil one. Every one of us have that option this morning, and there are no other options. You will either find yourself resting in the shadow of the Almighty God, or you find yourself beneath the wings of the evil one. The remnant, chapter 8, verse 9, calls out in a mocking fashion to their enemies, Be broken and shattered, O peoples. Give ear, gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan. It doesn't matter what the enemies of God plan, plan, it will be thwarted. State a proposal. That too will not stand. Why not? Why can the people of God have such resolute hope in Him? Because, the last phrase in verse 10 of chapter 8, for God is with us. Because Emmanuel Because God draws near to his people. How do we keep from becoming overwhelmed with the gloom and the darkness all around by hoping in the promise of God? That's what was available to the people of God of old. That's what was available to the people of God in the days of the New Testament when Christ came. That's what's available to us, to hope in the promises of God, to hope in God himself. Their plans, God has already said, shall not stand, (coughs) nor shall it come to pass. So we can hope in that, but we can't stop there. So many of God's people stop there. Yes, the enemies of God's plans will not stand, nor will they come to pass. That's fine, but there's more required of us. Back to chapter 7, verse 9. If we do not believe, we will not last. It's not okay for us to see that God will overcome all of his enemies if we remain his enemies. We must be reconciled to him. We must believe. We must put all our hope and trust in him. The end of verse 22, Behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. They will be driven away into darkness. This is where the people of God found themselves during the days of Isaiah. In fact, up until this point in Isaiah, it's a full catalog of gloom and distress. The people were caught up in all kinds of superstition, noted in chapter 2, verse 6. Their lives were marked by materialism, chapter 2, verse 7, and again in chapter 5, 8, and 9. They struggled with idolatry, chapter 2, verse 8, and 20. They were arrogant, chapter 2, again in chapter 5. They were experiencing poor leadership all around, being led by immature and by women who were not called to be leaders. They were experiencing social disintegration, continuing in chapter 3. Their lives were marked by sensuality and addiction, and it's on this dark canvas of apparent grim reality that the prophet Isaiah 
like an artist, splashes a breathtaking portrait and promise of the Lord of all light. But there will be, right on the heels of chapter 8, Again, verse 22, behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, they will be driven away into darkness. And then chapter 9, verse 1, but, or nevertheless, however, even though there is distress and darkness and gloom and anguish all around, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Listen to these ongoing promises here from God. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, (coughs) fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders." And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What hope. What glorious promise here. No more gloom, the prophet says. None. For those who were previously in anguish, (coughs) where he treated the land with contempt, he will make it glorious. And he continues with the contrast throughout. If those who walked in darkness, they'll see a great light. Those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So the takeaway for us is clear. Darkness and gloom all around does not in any way equal hopeless or hopelessness. The basis for hope is in this promised one, this child who will be born, this son who will be given, who will take on the government of the whole world and he will be king. He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. And there will be no, no end to the expanse of his kingdom. The gospel will run throughout every land and every tribe and nation and people will hear. And God will redeem his elect, his people, his children from every place on the planet. But our hope has to be there in this one who's promised. Because a misplaced hope is nothing more than hopelessness. We have to be careful to not hope in anything other than Christ and Christ alone. This child who was promised, this son who was promised, he wasn't just promised obscurely. Look, a child will be born to us. A son will be given 
to us, to God's people, a child, a son. God's people, of all people, should be a people with hope. Hope that derives from this one, this glorious one who was promised. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His name, God's name. It's God Himself that's been promised to us. In fact, God in His essence is completely inseparable from His name. His name is who He is. His character, His reputation, His identity. It's all wrapped up in His name. It's not a label for Him or a tag for Him the way your name or my name is. Our name is something that we have. God's name is something that He is. His name is synonymous with His person or His character. I am the Lord, Isaiah 42.8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. His name, His praise, His glory, it's all wrapped up together with Him. For the sake of my name, Isaiah 48, I delay my wrath and my praise. I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, God goes on to say, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. If we need further evidence of the importance of his name, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The the very core of our hope, the, the central foundation of our hope is in who God is. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be marked by impeccable, incomparable wisdom. He will order and orchestrate based on perfect knowledge. He has the ability to contrive perfect ends every time and to do that by the most perfect means. This God has devised in infinite wisdom the best ends imaginable, and He achieves these ends by perfect means every single time. All that He does, everything that God does, He does in perfect wisdom, and He does so in, for His own glory, as well as for the highest good of the largest number of people. Only God can do this. He is a wonderful counselor. His wisdom is this perfect, skillful, practical application of the knowledge that belongs to him, of omniscience. The wisdom of God is taking his knowledge and uniting it to his power and his goodness to where they all work perfectly together for our benefit as his people. He exercises his omniscience regarding all things and he does so with his might. And his commitment to doing good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's a wonderful counselor, perfectly wise in every aspect. Just right across the board, no one compares to him. In, In every way imaginable. He's not incredibly wise with regard to how he distributes love, but really struggles with how to accomplish justice. 
He's perfectly wise in every area. He's not really wise when he created the world, but really struggling to to be wise in, in the ruling of that created world. No, he's perfectly wise and perpetually wise. His wisdom never fades and never decays. His wisdom never grows or expands. His wisdom remains the same forever and ever because it's marked by who he is. His wisdom endures as long as he endures, which is infinite. His wisdom is eternal and infinite, without beginning, without increase, without end, without limit. And because he is the all-wise one, the wonderful counselor, the instruction that we find from him and his word is wonderful. He's the only voice worth listening to. It's not that there's no other truth out there in the world, but any other voice, all other voices with some measure of truth in them is derived from him. He is the wonderful counselor. And that would be enough if that's all Isaiah promised, but he keeps on. He's mighty God, the all-powerful one. Again, his power is just like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. The might of this God cannot be checked or restrained. It can't be frustrated by any creature. Now, it's true Some of his creatures, many of his creatures have some power, but that's because God has delegated it to them. But even in delegating power to his creatures, he hasn't relinquished any of his own might of everything that he does. And all that he does, he does without effort. Every act that God does is as easy as the one before or the one after. The the energy, the might of God never needs to be replenished. He never has to look outside of himself for renewal. Think about some of the examples of his might that we have in Scripture. The might of creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He said, let there be light. And there was light. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And what happened? It was so. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And what happened? It did. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And it happened. And it still exists. We've seen evidence of this in the past 24 hours. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. It doesn't really, you know that, but it looks like it does. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle creeping things, beasts of the earth after their kind. They're still roaming. God said it. It happened. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We're evidence of that. Every person who's ever lived, stamped with the image of God, we are image bearers of him who created us with the word of his power. But not only does he create with his might, he sustains. Hebrews 1.3, he, Christ, upholds all things by the word of his power. He doesn't just create, but he sustains. The reason there's still evidence of his creation is because he is sustaining it and only he has the might to do that but as I've mentioned time and again throughout the morning so far we are born in sin separated from God 
So what is God, how does God's might apply to that situation? First Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God exerts his might in rescuing sinners, saving us from our sin, from ourself, from Satan and hell, and namely from himself, from his wrath. Creating might, sustaining might, redeeming might, sanctifying might. Once he saves us, God isn't through with us. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. God has the might. He exerts the power to continue conforming each one of us to the image of his Son. Or resurrecting might, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus speaks, and the dead come forth. Lazarus, come forth. It is impossible for God to be anything other than almighty. In fact, when we imagine him less than almighty, we imagine an idol. His name will be called Mighty God. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? I don't know about you, but I find it hard to find better hope than in a God whose might will never faint. He'll never grow weary. He will not lose any of his power. He will continue, as he has promised, to exert it perfectly in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes, our good, and his glory. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. He's everlasting. The eternality of God, it is beyond comprehension for us to attempt to understand that he has no past and he has no future. He lives in an everlasting now. I mean, if we work hard, we can imagine God being at the beginning of time, but it's really hard for us to imagine him being before that, or that he will exist at the end of, the, at the end of time. But he's actually at the beginning and before the beginning, and at the end and after the end, and he's there simultaneously. You figure out how to describe that, and I'm all ears. God's not limited by time or anything, actually. He lives forever. He lives as the everlasting constant in the everlasting present as our eternal Father. Without mutation, alteration, variation, or fluctuation, He always remains the same, and only God is eternal and everlasting and infinite. God is alone in this. He is limitless which is why it's so difficult for our limited and finite minds to grasp the infinite and limitless one. God is what he has always been and will always be what he is in every one of his perfections. He is unchanging. He is incapable of changing. He is not susceptible to change. His divine being will not change for all of eternity. He will only He will live forever, but not only will he live forever, he will remain the same forever, and he ever lives to make intercession for every one of us who are in him. 
What great hope we have that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All of His remarkable wisdom, all of His might, all of His eternal boundlessness and changelessness is used to orchestrate peace for His people. We are at enmity with Him because of our sin. And Christ came as our hope to bring about reconciliation and peace between us and our God. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is how reconciliation happens. If you're not in Christ... If you haven't repented and believed, if you're not repenting and believing, this hope is for you. This peace is available for you. This reconciliation is for you. Hope and peace and joy result from humbling ourselves before Him. Rejection of Him, of who He is, results in war and ongoing enmity. But God has sent Christ for us in order that we might bow before Him, yielding our lives continually before Him, acknowledging Him and His greatness, worshiping Him with the entirety of who we are, obeying Him in every area of our lives, and loving Him with our whole hearts. So as we have the privilege over these next several weeks to continue being reminded about the season, you cannot avoid it in our culture. But don't despise it. Use it as a reminder of this glorious one who came to continue preparing your heart. Remember the anticipation of the saints of old. Learn from the examples that we have in Scripture and use it to stir our hearts to love him more. He is our hope that was promised. He is our hope that was fulfilled in the fullness of time. And he is our hope now and forever promised from the prophets that He will come, fulfilled in the Gospels, He came. He is the guarantee, the guarantee of God. He will come again. This one who is boundless in wisdom, infinite in might, our eternal peace. He is Emmanuel, God Most High, who is the thrice Holy One, dwelled in bodily form to draw near to us, And though that one lived and died and was raised again, ascending ascending on high, he sent another helper, another comforter, one of the same essence, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit of God came and he, he takes up and dwells his people individually and collectively so that this glorious God, who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, lives in us and among us. May God help us to anticipate and prepare and take full advantage of worshiping His Son whom He sent in order that we might be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word, the promises that it contains.
the fulfillments that we see evidenced. God, we thank you for those future fulfillments, and we live in light of those promises, that they are yes and amen to us because of who Christ is for us. God, we thank you for sending him who loved us with an everlasting love to die in our place in order that we might be robed with his righteousness. God, we pray that you would continue hearing our calls for help, answering our prayers for faith. And God, we pray that you'll continue stretching out your strong right arm and rescuing those who are wondering, those who are lost. God, will you give them new hearts, cause them to walk in your ways. And, we God, and God, we pray that you'll continue using the truth of your word, particularly during this season, that we might anticipate and prepare to worship Christ, who was a newborn king, but who is now our king forever and ever. We pray in his name. Amen.